we return to the Gospel of Matthew, we are entering into Jesus' third major block of teaching this morning. This is the central block of teaching in the whole Gospel, as it's laid out for us, in which he begins to focus his teachings on the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And he does this primarily through parables. Matthew's placed this collection of parables in the very center of his gospel, as you can see on the outline in your sermon notes, or we'll pop it up on the screen here for you uh, as well. Uh, You can see that Matthew's shaped his gospel in alternating between narrative, story, and teaching or sermons, where you have these narratives telling what happened, and then a block of teaching is given to us, and the whole narrative of the Gospel of Matthew is shaped like this chiasm, this X kind of shape where there's a center point. Everything's in the narrative and in the teaching is moving up to this center point, and then from that center point, everything else will flow out to the end of the Gospel. And so Matthew has very carefully crafted his presentation of the life of Jesus this way, and this block of teaching happens to be in the center of it all. And so we find some significance to that as we look at these things. We tend to think of parables as vivid stories drawn from everyday life that are intended to communicate some spiritual significance or moral lesson. However, that's not how Jesus describes them. As we walk through Matthew 13, we're going to see Jesus explain what he's doing with these stories, with these parables, twice from two different angles. We'll take the next three weeks to unpack this collection of parables, but this morning I'd like to provide somewhat of an overview uh, for the journey. So let's set the stage by looking first at Matthew 13, 1 to 3. So I invite you to open a Bible to Matthew 13. We'll look at the first three verses here for just a moment. At the end of Matthew 12, Jesus had been teaching in a home near the Sea of Galilee, and he was again confronted by the Pharisees, this time asking for some signs. Now we read in Matthew 13, verses 1 to 3, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables. It's likely that what we have in Matthew 13 is only a selection of the parables that Jesus taught on this occasion. If you read the parallel account in Mark Chapter 4, you'll find a few parables that Matthew doesn't mention here. Matthew's included and organized these parables very intentionally. And while that structure has been understood differently by different folks throughout the years, let me lay out to you how I see them. What I hope you'll get from this is to recognize that these parables fit together. They're not simply isolated teaching snippets. I've outlined this chapter in your sermon notes as well, and we'll put that on the screen also. Matthew's chosen seven parables to highlight for us. The first, which I've entitled The Sower and the Soils, is meant to introduce and serve as kind of an umbrella over all the others. Then you get two groups of three parables lumped together by a certain theme. So he tells the parable of the sower and the soils. Then he fields the question, why parables? Then he explains the meaning of the parable of the sower and the soils. Then he groups together three more parables, the wheat and the weeds, the mustard seed, and the hidden leaven. These three parables are linked by the theme of farming and food production. Then Jesus again addresses the question, or Matthew rather, addresses the question, why parables? But gives an answer that's slightly different, slightly coming from a different perspective. Then Jesus explains the meaning of the wheat and the weeds. Notice how that sequence mirrors the first group. Then we get the final group of three parables, hidden treasure, the pearl of great value, and the dragnet. These three parables are linked by the theme of business transactions, so that the kingdom of heaven can be understood in terms of business transactions. Like with farming and farm production, the kingdom of heaven can be understood in terms of farming and food production. So then at the end, Jesus provides an explanation for the parable of the dragnet, and then he closes by questioning whether the disciples have understood, which they confidently, perhaps overconfidently, say that they have. So what is a parable then? 
It's right to describe them simply as earthly stories with heavenly meanings. However, it's hard to define parables properly without including a statement of their purpose. That's where I'd like to go before we actually look at the first parable in Matthew 13. So let's skip down to verses 10 to 17 to show how Jesus answers the question, why parables? Matthew 13, verses 10 to 17. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now I wonder if this question from the disciples came right after Jesus had told the story of the sower and the soils, or whether it came later on, and Matthew has kind of fronted it here for the sake of his readers so that we won't get too lost. I wonder this because the disciples ask, why do you speak to them in parables, plural? I should remind you that Jesus has already spoken many parables by this point in his ministry. Sometimes it's suggested that this is the first time Jesus spoke in parables because this is the first time that Matthew actually uses the word parables in the Gospel of Matthew. The word parable has developed a precise meaning in English that the Greek word did not have. It covers a wide range of figures of speech. It it can include things like long stories that have allegorical significance, where the details in the story refer to specific details in real life, all the way down to what we would typically call proverbs. That's what makes the parables so tricky. There's no one rule for how to understand all of them. Each one has to be taken on its own and read in its own context with its own imagery and its own background. And of course, if Jesus provides an explanation, then we must follow his lead in understanding the meaning there. But here in Matthew 13, there is a bit of a shift. The disciples ask the question because Jesus is doing something different He does seem to be responding to the rising escalation of opposition and hostility that he's been facing. The things that we've seen in chapters 11 and 12. Notice that it's to them that Jesus speaks in parables. It's the crowds that Jesus addresses with parables in distinction from his disciples. Why the distinction? Through these parables, Jesus is able to communicate at two levels at the same time. He's able to communicate a single message about the kingdom of heaven that is at the same time hidden from one group of people and also revealed to another group of people. Jesus says that God has given the privilege of understanding the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to the disciples, but that privilege has not been given to anyone else. It ultimately goes back to what Jesus praised and thanked his father for back in Matthew eleven twenty five that he hides the truth from the wise and understanding, and that he reveals the truth to little children. So, see if we can get a working definition of parables, particularly Jesus' kingdom parables that we see focused on here in this chapter. This comes from a fellow named Gerald Bilks. Kingdom parables are comparisons with scenarios and stories drawn from everyday life in order to conceal and reveal spiritual truth relating to the kingdom of heaven. 
That phrase, secrets of the kingdom of heaven, is also important. The word translated secrets is usually translated mysteries. The word mystery is only used by Jesus in this context when he's talking about kingdom parables. And everywhere in the New Testament that this word mystery occurs, I think it always refers to something that was partially hidden for a time that is either now being more fully revealed or will at some point in the near future be more fully revealed. Partially hidden up to this point, but is now being fully revealed. With these parables, the story itself has some hidden truth. And it's some hidden insight into the nature of the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus has to explain the meaning so that his disciples can understand that truth. Later in Matthew, we'll see that even the Pharisees sometimes understand the gist of a parable. You remember the parable of the vineyard tenants? It's at the end of Matthew 21, and Matthew tells us there that the chief priests and the Pharisees understood that he had told the parable against them. So they partially understood the message, but they didn't understand fully Or they would have responded differently by repenting and not seeking to put Jesus to death. What is the secret? What are the mysteries? We'll have to unpack parables as they've been given to us in the scriptures to see for ourselves. But I like one simple summary I read that probably gets to the heart of the matter. It comes down to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophetic expectations about God's kingdom but it is fulfillment without consummation. Fulfillment without consummation. Verse 12 in this light is unexpected. I am accustomed to the Bible speaking of divine reversals, where God humbles the proud and exalts the humble, where God blesses the poor and curses the rich, where God takes from those who have and gives to those who have not. In this case... God gives more to those who have and takes from those who have not. Thus, we have to see a dual purpose in these parables, to reveal to some and to conceal from others. The crowds are a mixed group. Some of them will come to follow Jesus. Some of them will remain curious but not committed. Some of them will be Pharisees who actively oppose Jesus. But they've all come to listen to Jesus' teaching, and Jesus is going to sift them out through parables. He recognizes that many of them are watching him, but not really interested in seeing who he is. They're listening to the words coming out of his mouth, but they're not interested in changing their lives based on what he says. And Jesus says they're fulfilling a prophecy of Isaiah. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And this comes from Isaiah's famous call story. Isaiah's mission is being described. He is to preach to the people of Israel who have long been hardened in their rebellion. And it's time for judgment. So the people of Isaiah's day fulfilled these words. But the people of Jesus' day really fulfill these words. The word Jesus uses for fulfilled in this verse is unique. And it can mean... Fulfilled again, or fulfilled completely. The people are responsible for their responses to Jesus. And they're never going to change. Notice there in verse 15 that they have shut their own eyes. God in the flesh is standing in front of them, speaking words of grace and love and truth, announcing His glorious kingdom and inviting them to be a part And they cover their eyes, they stick their fingers in their ears, and refuse to look, refuse to listen, refuse to understand. They are choosing ignorance. They are choosing rejection. Therefore, they are choosing judgment. Jesus' parables are a form of judgment against them, against those who have hardened themselves already against Jesus. Pastor Douglas Wilson puts it this way, The parables were given to illuminate the enlightened and to darken further those who love darkness. This is no different than what Paul says in Romans 1, that God gives sinners over 
to greater sinfulness as a way of revealing his wrath against them. Charles Spurgeon says, those who refuse to see are punished by becoming unable to see. The penalty of sin is to be left in sin. But the disciples have eyes to see and ears to hear. They have eyes that are blessed, fortunate, happy to be congratulated. Why? Their eyes see, their ears hear. They are greater than John the Baptist. They are greater than the prophets and righteous people of old, privileged to see and hear the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven and even to participate in it. What sets the disciples apart? They seem to understand the meaning of the parables just as little as everybody else who hears them. So what's the difference? Two things. First, and primarily, the choice of God to reveal these things to them. But secondly... They understand enough to come to Jesus to ask for more information. As we move into looking at this specific parable, let me remind you of something else interesting that Jesus said in this context, recorded for us in Mark. Mark 4, 13, we read Jesus saying to the disciples, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? It's as though Jesus is saying, If you don't get this one, you won't get any of the others. And I think the corollary is implied. If you can get this one, you can get the others. Thus, the meaning of the parable of the sower and the soils provides some key for understanding the other kingdom parables. Jesus is doing what a good teacher often does in a math or science class. He works out a problem on the board, showing all the steps to get the correct answer. Then he sends his students home with homework. Similar problems that can be worked out by the same method. So Jesus works out a couple of the parables and then turns us loose on the rest. So let's get the story in front of us, shall we? Picking up at the end of Matthew 13, verse 3. A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, can you try to imagine that you picked up this story on some piece of parchment out in the desert? You've never heard of Jesus. You know nothing about Christianity. What would you conclude is the point of the story? Would you guess that it has some spiritual meaning? I would probably assume that this was part of some kind of farming manual. And the writer's describing what would happen if you don't scatter seeds carefully. I would think that this might be a cautionary tale about making sure that you sow in good soil only. Even if you put yourself in the sandals of Jesus' first hearers, the, the original audience here who heard the story, you wouldn't have much more of an indication of what Jesus is talking about. You might assume, because it's Jesus telling the story that there is some spiritual significance, but what could it be? If you assume that the sower is God, well, the story might actually put God in a bad light. Like he doesn't know where the good soil is and doesn't know how to focus his sowing so that it's productive. One writer suggests that to Jesus' original audience not even considering us, to Jesus' original audience, the parable must have seemed like promising to develop a winning hockey team by teaching knitting. Our familiarity with the parable and its explanation leads us to lose the strangeness of the story. Some folks even say that the story is self-explanatory, that its meaning is readily apparent, But that goes directly against what Jesus says is the purpose of parables. They are intended to conceal the truth. Therefore, they cannot be straightforward. 
The story itself is simple, but it requires a knowledge of the farming practices of the ancient world. Now, I was raised on a farm of sorts, I mentioned last week, but my grandparents would indeed swear that I was born a city boy. So my understanding of farming, both ancient and modern, is very much dependent on what I read. So let me quote the description of commentator Simon Kistemacher. The farmer in Jesus' parable took his supply of grain to the field in a bag slung around his neck and shoulders. The bag hung down in front of him, and with rhythmic step he cast seed in strips across the field. He was not concerned about the relatively few kernels that landed on the path bordering the field or about the seed that fell on the shallow soil where the limestone was jutting out of the earth or about the wheat that dropped among the thorn plants which would come to life in the spring of the year and choke out the growing wheat. Wheat For the farmer, it was all in a day's work. The focus of the story quickly becomes clear, we are meant to zoom in on the different kinds of soil. And we should notice that only the seeds that fell on the good soil gave forth fruit, or produced grain, as the ESV has it in verse 8. Nevertheless, the story explains a different reason for each of the different soils that don't produce fruit. This will be where to find the meaning of the parable. Before we review Jesus' explanation, note again verse 9. Jesus uses this phrase, He who has ears, let him hear, repeatedly, not only in connection with parables. I want you to think about this call for just a moment. If I said this to you, the one who has ears must hear, how would you respond? Well, for one thing, I can see that all of you have ears on the side of your head, except for some of you ladies whose hair covers your ears. But I tend to assume, even if I can't see them, that all of you have ears. Jesus seems to be suggesting that some people in his audience may not have ears. So, are there deaf people in Jesus' audience that may have literal physical ears, but do not have the sense of hearing, and therefore cannot perceive and understand what Jesus is saying? Is he excluding deaf people here? Surely not. No, he's surely talking about spiritual ears. Ears not on the sides of our head, but ears in our heart. The question that this raises is, why do some people have ears and some people don't? And perhaps more urgently, if you don't have ears, how do you get some? I think Jesus is playing off the language he'll quote in his explanation, which we've already talked about from Isaiah chapter 6. The people may have physical ears to hear the sounds coming out of the mouth of Jesus, but they don't have spiritual ears. They don't have the capability of processing Jesus' message and responding appropriately. Both in Isaiah 6 and here in Matthew's context, the quotation does not apply to every single individual. It doesn't apply to everybody. It doesn't apply to Jesus' disciples and anyone who would humble themselves come to Jesus and ask for some explanation of what they're hearing. Even the twelve disciples, those closest to Jesus, already will not understand the parables without his explanation. If someone hears Jesus' words and finds them attractive, finds finds their heart being drawn to the one speaking, even though there might not be cognitive understanding of what Jesus is talking about, then it may be that you have been given spiritual ears. It all comes down to the question, how do you hear? Now, I could try to explain all the chemical, biological, and even electrical things going on in your body that make it possible for your physical ears to hear the words coming out of my mouth this morning. Actually, I probably couldn't. Some of you could do a better job of explaining that. Ever since Eliana was born, I've watched a lot of a show called Peppa Pig. If you don't know about Peppa Pig, it's a British show for young children. And if you should let your kids or your grandkids watch Peppa Pig, it's available on YouTube, you should know they'll probably pick up some Britishisms along the way. But that's okay. Your child will just become a little clever clogs and their friends won't know any difference about that. So the story revolves around a little girl, little piggy girl named Peppa and her family. 
The show follows the adventures of her family, and it's one of the sweetest cartoon families I've seen, and I've seen a lot. Daddy Pig is something of an expert in lots of areas, at least so he claims. I think he works as either an architect or what we might call a civil engineer, but sometimes Peppa will ask Daddy Pig how something works. And Daddy Pig will say, well, it's simple. And then he'll launch into a technical textbook explanation for how it works. Before he finishes, inevitably, Peppa will cut him off and say, is it magic? And Daddy Pig will respond, yes, it's magic. So, like Daddy Pig, I'll spare you the technical explanation and just say not, it's magic, but it's a miracle. Hearing is a miracle. Now, it is interesting at this point to remember that the Bible actually addresses this question and answers it. So I'll just read Paul's answer to the question, how do people hear? And by hearing, both Jesus and Paul mean hearing with understanding and an appropriate response. Paul answers this question in Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes, from, comes through the word of Christ. So where can you get some of those spiritual ears Jesus talks about? Spiritual ears, spiritual hearing, hearing with faith comes from Jesus' words. That is to say, it's a miracle. Just as he spoke into the tomb of Lazarus, and by the power of his words, Lazarus woke up alive again, so also sinners who are spiritually deaf can be given the ability to hear by Jesus' powerful word. He speaks and the deaf hear. So the application here is simple. Keep on listening. Keep on sitting under Jesus' words. Keep on putting his words in front of your face in the Bible. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you don't know him, I urge you, I plead with you, keep listening, keep reading, keep considering the teachings of Jesus and the word of God in the scriptures. Now let's see how Jesus explains this parable for us. Matthew 13, verses 18 to 23. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. To make our way through this more simply and more quickly, I've created a chart that's there in the bulletin in your sermon notes. The first column contains the key descriptive pieces in the story from verses 1 to 8, and the second column contains the corresponding explanatory pieces from verses uh, 19 to 23. Even though Jesus uses the the phrase, the parable of the sower, the sower is never actually identified specifically. We could go down to the next parable, the weed and the weeds, where the sower is identified uh, as the son of man in Jesus' explanation. While the focus of the sower's activity in the next parable is different than what we have in this first parable, the connection probably stands But in this parable, there is an importance to the generalized reference to a sower. As we get to listen in on this explanation of the parable for the disciples, we can realize that the big picture point that Jesus is trying to get across, the aspect of the mystery of the kingdom of heaven that he's revealing to the disciples here is that they can expect 
a variety of different responses to their preaching. And of course, this applies to Jesus as well. We've witnessed all of these various responses to his preaching already in the Gospel of Matthew. So the sower represents anyone who speaks the word of the kingdom to others. What about the seed itself? The seed refers to the word of the kingdom. In Mark's Gospel, it's just the word. And in Luke's Gospel, it's the word of God. So we're talking about talking about Jesus. We're talking about sharing the gospel, the good news about the kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating in his ministry. This is where the power is. This is where the life is, in the seed, in the word. When you talk to people about Jesus, how are they going to respond? That's what the different soils represent. The parable gives four different ways of responding. Or we could say that the four soils represent four different kinds of hearts. Ultimately, I should say that the parable really only gives two kinds of hearts, two kinds of soil, two kinds of hearers, unfruitful and fruitful. Unfruitful soil is characterized by three different realities or three different categories of obstacles. The path and the birds, the bedrock and the sun, and thorns. Fruitful soil is characterized by producing grain, though each specific plot of ground may produce different amounts of grain. With regard to the soils where the seed does not bear fruit, Jesus could have listed lots of other obstacles, lots of other hindrances to fruit production, but he chooses three common ones. So we probably shouldn't attempt to classify everyone by these three categories. But we get a flavor of the various ways people will respond to God's word. Let's look at them in turn. The first kind of response, the first heart described, is compared to seed sown on the walking path, cut through or along the side of the farmer's field. This is where people would commonly walk, so it's hardened from all the foot traffic. It doesn't actually contain any topsoil where a seed might receive the nutrients it needs to germinate. This represents a person whose heart is so hardened so that God's word, the message of the kingdom, doesn't really penetrate but remains on the surface. Jesus can say that this person does indeed hear the message and the seed is sown in the person's heart. So this kind of person listens to the message, and thinks about it. But ultimately, the heart is hardened against moving toward a positive response. This hearer doesn't understand the message. Given Jesus' quotation of the Isaiah passage, I think we've got to recognize that this understanding is not simply describing a person's intellectual reasoning and processing of the message. This kind of hearer refuses to understand. It's a willing ignorance. The Pharisees are a good example of this first soil. They've heard the word of the kingdom, but they intentionally twist it by attributing his miracles, which validate his message, to the power of the devil. They refuse to see how Jesus' actions and his message are rooted in the Old Testament scriptures, regardless of how clearly and how abundantly Jesus demonstrates that rootedness. Jesus' disciples, and thus you and I, should continue to expect hard-hearted rejection of our message from some people. I've emphasized this aspect of the first example, but there's another factor. Satan is involved. But notice that the birds can only snatch away the seed because the seed never sunk into the ground. It sits on the surface, unreceived into the ground so that it might be easy prey. Thus, for the Pharisees and others like them, a hard heart puts them in danger of having the word completely removed from them. Satan is perhaps the agent who so twists the message that the hearers who have already initially rejected it, when they think of the message again or when they hear it again, it sounds to them increasingly foolish. But the primary responsibility for rejection is with the person and not Satan. 
Pastor Doug O'Donnell vividly describes the process with regard to the Pharisees as we've seen it unfold in the Gospel of Matthew. He writes, It doesn't take long for their hearts to harden. When they, see, when they hear Jesus say that he has the authority to forgive sins, their hearts begin to tighten. And when they see him welcome sinners to table fellowship, their hearts start to slowly freeze. And finally, once he breaks their sacred laws by healing a man on the Sabbath, their small, cold hearts become calcified as hard as the floor. And the seed, still sitting there right atop their hard hearts, is an easy swallow for Satan. The second kind of response, the second heart described, is compared to seeds sown on rocky ground. This is a patch of ground that has a bit of topsoil where the seed can receive some nutrients and begin to germinate. But just below the visible surface, there is stony bedrock, preventing the budding plant to shoot down any roots. Nevertheless, the seed draws on the nutrients that are there and shoots up a plant immediately. But then the plant is impacted by the hot sun and can't cope. It withers away just as quickly as it shot up. In verse 5, Jesus says this is because they had no depth of soil. In verse 21, he says it is because he has no root in himself. This is describing a person who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Boy, that seems like a good thing. This is, a, this is the person who enthusiastically responds to the gospel. This represents many who respond to invitations at evangelistic crusades or revival meetings or youth camps. Pastor Douglas Wilson says, Enthusiasm is one of the danger signs. Why does this seed spring up quickly? Well, it doesn't have anywhere to go. That's the only way it can go is up. It doesn't have enough soil beneath it to go down. And if the root were to go down, it would be more firmly established. So if it has nowhere to go but up, you have a revival meeting, get everybody whipped up emotionally, and then all the seed comes up rapidly. Enthusiasm is a danger sign. That doesn't mean enthusiasm is wrong, but it does mean that enthusiasm by itself, the kind of revival where people get whipped up emotionally, that's not necessarily good. In Jesus' ministry, this could be describing the folks in the crowd who have been impressed by Jesus' teaching and miracles. They are amazed by Jesus, wowed by Him but they're not committed to following him. This is the person who enthusiastically says to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go, but has not really counted the cost of discipleship. They, quote-unquote, believe temporarily, Jesus says. They make an eager profession of faith, but can't take the heat that his followers receive inevitably. Jesus and several New Testament writers repeatedly promise that followers of Jesus will face tribulation and persecution. Jesus is very honest about that in his evangelism. Genuine followers of Jesus endure. Fake followers fall away. Many who walked an aisle at a revival meeting or a crusade or a youth camp don't last a week after returning home, showing that their public profession was only words that didn't reflect a truly repentant believing heart. Many of those who do come home to begin attending church turn their backs on God when cancer strikes, when their house burns down, or when someone at work laughs at them for trying to pray over their lunch, or when someone at church gossips about them. Jesus will later say, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And I should add, many Many who made profession of faith at revival meetings, crusades, or youth camps proved to be good soil too. The third kind of response, the third heart described, is compared to seed among thorns. Notice that the thorns are already there before the seed is sown. Thus, this is a person who already has the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches inside him. The phrase, the cares of this world, is more literally the worry 
of this age. Jesus warned about worry in his kingdom life discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus told us that worry is something to be worried about. (laughs) Worry is something rooted in this age, this fallen age of human history. Do you know why worry is or can be sinful for followers of Jesus? Because this age, this old fallen age, hasn't yet come to an end. This is the mystery of the kingdom on display. It has been inaugurated. The new age has dawned, but the fullness of the age to come, the consummation of the kingdom, which will put this fallen age to its proper end, has not yet arrived. We live in the overlap of the ages. Do you know why? This is why every follower of Jesus still worries. That tension that we live with every single day. And so, even genuine followers of Jesus still struggle with worry. But for this third kind of hearer, worry and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word. This is a person who professes faith in Jesus but is dominated by concerns related to this age and is ultimately a materialist. The spiritual life is not cared about or attended to. Or as one writer puts it, the deceitfulness of wealth combines with worry to choke out the life of the seed for the one who is trying to manage his or her life apart from God and is tempted to find the solution in worldly resources. I wonder if this is the most common kind of hearer we will engage with in this country. This is one who perhaps is the most difficult to identify. You see, I think Judas was an example of this soil. He was one of the twelve, close follower of Jesus during his ministry. Yet John's gospel tells us that he was a thief who was accustomed to stealing money from the disciples. Another example was a ministry co-worker of Paul's named Demas. At the end of Colossians, Demas is alongside Paul and Luke greeting the Colossian Christians. But just a few years later, Paul has these unhappy words to say about Demas. For Demas, in love with his present age, has deserted me. The end of the matter is this. The third soil proves to be unfruitful. How do you know if seed sown is fruitful or unfruitful? How long do you keep watching? The seed might be unfruitful for many seasons. And then seemingly suddenly, the seed begins pushing out a bumper crop. But it's only the harvest of Judgment Day that will finally show publicly what kind of soil, what kind of hearer each person was. So here's one application for you. Never give up on anyone. If you're out sowing seed, if you're talking to people about Jesus, you will likely experience all of these responses and others besides. What's so interesting about the sower in this story is that he sows indiscriminately. He doesn't seem too worried about putting the seed in the right place. He's not trying to discern where the good soil is and then make sure he places the seed only there. That is not our job. I think it was Spurgeon who said that if God had marked out the elect by putting a yellow stripe down their back, instead of preaching, he'd be out there lifting up coattails. God hasn't given us any visible indications of who he has chosen to save. Instead, he commands us to preach the gospel to all people and leave the results up to him. Furthermore, don't get discouraged if you find that someone you led to Christ seems to be struggling, seems to be walking away from the Lord. We need to be careful about becoming prideful sowers. We can experience unnecessary shame when one of our plants seems to walk away and turns out to be an unfruitful hearer. Our responsibility is simply to keep sowing the word. Finally, the fourth kind of response, the fourth heart described, is the one who hears the word and understands it. 
Understanding is a loaded word here. It isn't just cognitive, intellectual understanding of the message. Rather, it is that plus proper response to the message, repentance and faith. It's fruit-bearing. Hearing must result in doing, as James also teaches us. There are differences of opinion regarding whether the yield described as 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold is a huge, miraculous kind of crop or whether it's pretty typical. It depends on how you count, I suppose, and I don't know enough about farming to decide for sure. I'd like to think this is a huge crop. As one writer puts it, what is, I think, of central importance is that we have yield figures for the seed in the good soil, which are so high that they cause the heavy losses documented for the three cases of failure to pale into insignificance. You see, this parable is not about the failure of the gospel. Instead, by concluding with the good soil and its yield, the parable emphasizes the ultimate success of the gospel. Each individual plant, each individual follower of Jesus will bear different amounts of fruit. As one writer puts it, he's not saying... All Christians will bear fruit, some a little and some a lot. Rather, he is saying, all Christians will bear fruit, some a lot, some a lot more, and some a whole lot more. It's hard not to think of the fruit of the Spirit in this connection. Ultimately, the plant grows and fruit is born by the power of God. And so the follower of Jesus grows and bears fruit by the power of the Holy Spirit and the fruit produced is obedience to Jesus' teachings that takes the shape of the fruit of the Spirit laid out for us in Galatians 5. It's also hard not to think of Jesus' teaching about the vine and the branches in John 15. Branches that have some connection to Jesus, maybe have made a profession of faith in Jesus but don't bear fruit, are cast away in judgment, shown to have no real life-giving connection to Jesus, the vine. Jesus intends for his followers to bear much fruit, cultivating an intimate connection to him, depending on the power of the Spirit and trusting our Heavenly Father, especially when we face persecution or tribulation. This parable, like all the parables, reveals a mystery of the kingdom to us, Jesus' followers. We might wish and we might even expect that the power of God's word should mean That everywhere seed is sown, fruit will be produced, to use the terms of the parable. After all, doesn't Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 promise that God's word will accomplish God's purposes? It will not return void. Indeed, it does. But, as with the parables, God sends his word not only to save, but also to judge. Not only to draw people, but also to harden. Thus, we should never let people's negative responses to the message discourage us from continuing to talk about Jesus. As one writer says, it will often seem that much of the seed is wasted when the gospel is preached widely. But it is better for a farmer to labor, sweat, and cast the seed in places where it may not yield fruit than it is for him to assume that he knows exactly which soil is good ground. Even though this parable is primarily descriptive and the unfruitful soils describe the hearts of unbelievers, I think there's also a call here for us, for each of us, to examine our own hearts. After all, even followers of Jesus can harden our hearts. Even we as followers of Jesus can struggle when tribulation or persecution comes into our lives. Even we, as followers of Jesus, can be overcome by anxiety and deceived by wealth. What do we do then? Our only recourse, our only strategy can be to return to the powerful Word. Keep listening to God's Word. Keep reading it. Keep putting it before your mind and plead with God to open your eyes so that you might see the wonderful, life-giving things that are there for you. And we must respond to what we hear, respond to what we read with faith and repentance, believing whatever God tells us is true in the Scriptures and pursuing obedience to whatever God tells us to do in those same Scriptures. Jesus has died to pay 
for our wrong responses to God's Word. Even that can be redeemed. And so it is that the responsibility lies with us to keep proclaiming the gospel and to keep hearing it and receiving it and trusting it. That is how the kingdom grows, as we'll see next time. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word and the power of it. It's on display in this story like it is in so many places in Scripture. Would you help us to believe the power of the word, that it really is up to you to save sinners. Help us to keep proclaiming the only message you've given us that does that. The gospel is the power that you use to save sinners who believe the message. So would you help us to be faithful in sowing the word with our loved ones, with those out in the world. But would you also help us to rest, to rest in that same gospel that you have accomplished all that is necessary. Thank you for the way that you have accomplished salvation. Thank you for the way that you've brought your kingdom into this world and called us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Would you help us to live in a way that honors our King? We want to worship our King. We want to point to Him in every area of our lives. So would you help us to do that and help us to receive all the grace that we need moment by moment. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. I think we've got a couple of announcements.